want to preach to you on the Good Samaritan, an example to learn from, the Good Samaritan. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Good Samaritan, in a, or a Samaritan in a different sense, the woman at the well, how Jesus approached her, and she was wondering why Jesus approached her being a Samaritan woman, because the relationship between the Samaritans and other folks was not a good relationship. And uh, so it was unique that Jesus would take time to talk with a Samaritan woman. I want to begin this morning by reading verses 25 through 37. So if you would just kind of follow along. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him... He had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said... He who showed mercy on him, then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that you would speak to us through your text this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Several thoughts and questions came to my mind. I, I don't know about you, but I've read this story, I've heard this story countless times from my childhood all the way up. And as I said earlier this morning, it's amazing when you read through a passage and something jumps off a page afresh and anew that maybe you hadn't considered before. Maybe a different perspective, a different angle. Same truth, same word, but just this time God allows it to jump off the page. And that's what, something that kind of happened to me this week as I was reading through this passage again. So several questions came to my mind. And first of all, you have to know that the lawyer in this sense is not like a lawyer today. We're not talking somebody who was with business law or, or uh, defending a person who had killed somebody. The lawyer in this sense, in this text, was more somebody who was a master of the Mosaic Law. It was somebody who had studied it, somebody who knew it, who knew the rules, the regulations, the, the uh, implementation of it. So the lawyer in this sense was just somebody who was an expert at Mosaic Law. But most likely, considering the lawyer's background, he knew the answer to what he was asking Jesus but we see, according to verse 28, is that he was testing Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's probably not a good thing to do, just saying. But uh, Jesus asked him, what was written in the law, and, and, and what do you make of it? How do you read it? How do you understand it? How do you interpret it? As he uh, asked him here. 
But he responded with the right answer, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5, from Leviticus 19.18. And, um, and so Jesus adds just a little twist in it in verse 29, I believe. Something that jumped off the page as I was reading it. And he says, but Jesus, but he wanted to justify him. I'm, I'm sorry. And, and he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. That phrase jumped off the page to me this time. Do this and you shall live. You see, there's something about the texture that we kind of just gloss over as we read through it from time to time or hear the story of it from time to time. And it's this. The lawyer was wanting to test Jesus, first of all, and then he wanted to justify himself. And why was that that he wanted to justify himself? Let that sink in just for a moment. Why did he have to feel the need to justify himself? And then why did Jesus follow it up with, do this and you shall live? I think when you put the two phrases together, this is my own opinion here, but I think when you put the two phrases together, he's, he's wanting to justify something that he's not doing, and Jesus is bringing about that point and saying, do this and you'll live. See, two things are happening here. He's not doing it, and Jesus is saying, you need to start doing it. You see, oftentimes we know the book answer, but are we willing to follow it? How often in our walk with God do we know what's right, but we're not willing to do what we know is right? It's like the, stat, the, the, the circumstance that I've encountered many times throughout the years. In 25 years of being a pastor, uh, there's been many times where someone has come into my office and said, well, pastor, what do you think I should do? Well, the obvious thing you should do is this, and then they walk out and do the exact opposite. And you think, why did you waste our time? Because you're going to do your own thing and then you're going to justify it. Well, he's going to do this or she's going to say that and I'm just just going to do my own thing. The reality is, there's a whole bunch of us that know a bunch of right stuff to do and we're not doing it. And then to complicate it, we want to justify why we're not. Folks, that's sin. Remember we saw that a couple weeks ago? James, to him that knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So we need to not justify ourselves but to just simply walk in obedience. So he says, do this and live. So it was something that he was already very familiar with. Back in Leviticus uh, chapter uh, 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So we've been talking about that theme this summer quite a bit, haven't we? We uh, went through the book study, The Art of Neighboring. We kind of learned what it meant to really love your neighbor. And when, and when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, what if he really meant your next door neighbor and the neighbor two doors down and the neighbor across the street and the neighbor behind you? And what if he really meant to truly love your neighbor? What would change if we would really do that? But kind of in our minds, we say, well, we do do that. We love everybody because we're Christians and we're, we're called to love and we just love everybody. But see, love is a decision that results in action expects nothing in return see love is not just an emotion it has elements of emotion but love is really a decision and it results in action so here's a couple of questions that came to my mind as i was reading through this do we sometimes ask questions we already know the answer to answer is yeah we call them rhetorical questions at times and sometimes we just say it because we don't really want to answer, so we just kind of, kind of flub it over by asking another question. Have you ever had tried to have a conversation with somebody and they, you ask them why they did something and they turn around and ask you a question? It's like, wait a minute, you're missing the point. You didn't answer. 
Jesus used it for his advantage to teach him a lesson. Second question came to my mind is, do we at times, like the lawyer, try to justify ourselves? I think we do. I think we're really good at it. Well, you know, God knows how busy I am, so he understands why I don't get out and share my faith the way I should. I mean, i got these things to do. God understands. And we've, what? Justified ourselves. I mean, God knows that I'm really busy. I have all these kids. i got these grandkids. i got this work schedule. i got everything. And we really learn to, what? Justify ourselves. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at it. Maybe you are too. I can justify it, rationalize it, excuse it. I'm good. But the lawyer was really bringing out a point. I'm giving you reasons why I shouldn't have to do certain things. So therefore, he's wanting to justify. Well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And literally, the word in the language means those closest in proximity to you. So who's in close proximity to who you are as an individual? And does that proximity of where you are change? Of course it does. Because sometimes you're at work and there's a proximity of people around you who are your neighbors, biblically speaking. Or some of you are at school and there's a proximity of people around you and those are your neighbors, biblically speaking. And some of you are at your home in the neighborhood, in your community, and there's a proximity of people around you and that's your neighbor, according to the Bible. So who is your neighbor? Who is the neighbor that God has called you to love even as you would love yourself? Then, do we just sense a little bit of implication from Jesus' words that he wasn't doing what he, was, what he thought he was? Do this. Because maybe he wasn't doing this as he thought he was. Another passage came to my mind as I was going through this text, and it's over in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, over in Nehemiah chapter 9, there is this back and forth, 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 back and forth. They're doing what's right, then they're not. Then they're doing what's right, then they're not. Then they're doing what's right, then they're not. Then they're doing what's right, then there's not. There's this back and forth, and something is brought to their attention. And I won't read through the entire passage, but I want to begin reading in chapter 9 and verse 9. It says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea and the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they showed that they should travel. Came down also on the Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws and good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in and possess the land which you had sworn to give them. Over and over, is there any lack of God giving them instruction? Was there any lack of God giving the children of Israel direction in what they should do and, and providing for them time after time after time? No. But verse 16, But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. 
But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. So he was there. It's a reminder. God gave them everything they needed as far as physical supply, as far as spiritual guidance. God gave them everything that they could need. And after a while, they just said, oh, well, they just come to expect that God's just always going to do. God's going to always be, and God's just going to take care of us. So they began to live in sin. They hardened their necks. They forgot who God was. They're beginning to do their own thing. Look at verse 18. Even when they made molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them by them light and the way they should go. He said, Even in our rebellion, even in our sinfulness, you didn't forsake them. Over and over, back and forth, back and forth. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts so they took possession of the land of Sion and the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og and king of Bashan. And you also multiplied their children. Over and over, God just continued, kept blessing them, even in their sinfulness. But then I come down to verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Verse 28, But after they had rest, they again did evil before, before you. I mean, they'd go in there and they would do wrong, and God would forgive them and provide for them, and then they would forget God, and God would come back in and forgive them and provide for them, and they would forget God, and God would forgive them. And over and over and over, this vicious cycle. In the middle of verse 28, so that they had dominion over them, yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 29, testified against them that you might bring them back to your law, yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments. Which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Down to verse 33. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. As I was reading through this, I'm thinking to myself, how often are we no different than the children of Israel? We wake up every day and we enjoy God's blessing on our life. Do we not? We slept in a nice warm bed, probably in air condition. We woke up to a nice meal, and we have several a day. We have clothes to put on. We have cars to drive, houses that we live in, jobs that we're thankful for, money to exist, health, your breathing. And we forget who's done all that. Day after day, after day. And God comes along and He says, listen, don't forget all I've done for you. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget everything that I've provided, my protection, my provision. Everything that you have is because of me. And we just go on our merry way thinking that, well, we're good. We're okay. 
And when someone challenges us why we're not doing certain things that we know we should be doing, we immediately have an answer. We immediately give justification. Well, that's not my gift. That's somebody else's gift. I'm not really good at it. Other people are better at it. Well, I don't have time, and I'll have more time later. Fill in the blank. What's your excuse? I bet I have one very similar to it. But we have got to get to the place because we know what God is expecting of us as His children, right? Anybody disagree with that? We know what He expects of us. But are we doing it? Or do we find ourselves not so much different than the lawyer testing the Lord? Who's my neighbor? Who am I, who's it that I'm supposed to love? Tell me again. You see, until we love Him supremely, we'll never love those around us supremely. That's fact. Until you care, you will not share. And this story is a great reminder. Just like the children of Israel, they knew the law. Just like the lawyer did. They knew it. And yet they did their own thing. And God still showed up in mercy and grace and provided for them. So what was the problem with the young ruler? Jesus was about to expose this whole problem. And I think the problem is bigger than what we think. We're going to get to it. And it's probably not the twist that you thought of. So look at verses 30 through 35 once again. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So, just a couple things about the story. The road, we're told, was a difficult road to travel. It was a road that was twisting and winding down, and it went downhill. And the bottom line is, it was a place where robbers would hide and jump out on people as they would pass by on easy prey. Three people came to this man in great despair. Notice who they were. First of all, a priest. Just the very thought of the word priest, what comes to your mind? Somebody who's at least knowledgeable of the law. Somebody who's at least religious. And our, most of us, in our thinking, we think that religious people would help, right? I mean, that's our, at least our, our, our practical thinking, right? Surely a priest would help. But no, what did the priest do? He sees him and he passes over on the other side. Gives no care, no concern, not a thought. Just keeps going on his merry way. But then we have a Levite. Very similar circumstance. He's of, he's of a priestly line. He knows the law. And oftentimes uh, we're very involved in religion and so forth. He knew what was expected. And yet, once again, no care, no concern in the world, not a thought. Just keep going on in a merry way. But let's stop right there just for a moment. 
before we get too harsh and critical of the priest and the Levite. Not physically, but in your own mind, raise your hand if you've ever saw a need and just pretended you didn't see it, didn't have time to deal with it, quite honestly didn't want to deal with it, and you just let that need go. You don't have to raise your hand, but in your mind, how many of us have done that? I think we can put ourselves in the same boat as those two men. And once again, we've learned to justify it. We're busy. There's too much going on. We have things to do, places to go, people to see. But then the third person, who is the most unlikely person to stop, a Samaritan once again. Only this time it's not the Samaritan at the well. It's a Samaritan who's passing by who shows compassion. Remember the phrase that we say quite often that compassion without action is just empathy? See, the two, two first guys, they weren't even empathetic towards the circumstance. They just kept going. The Samaritan showed compassion. He acted upon what he saw. And not only that, he was willing to give up his time. I, I don't know what, what was on the agenda of the Samaritan that day. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we can assume something probably. He was on a journey. He was on his way to some place. He had something to do as he was passing by. I'm going to make an assumption, though it could be wrong, is that he had things to do on his daily to-do list. But he was willing to sacrifice his time. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's harder to give time than it is money, right? I mean, anybody can flick a dollar bill in, a, or a check, or a, an amount. But time, that's another whole commodity. Are we willing to sacrifice our time for the cause of Christ? Then we see that he gave up his money. That was the second thing. It wasn't just his time, but he was willing to give money. He brings him to the innkeeper and says, anything more you spend, I'll, I'll pay you, I'll gladly repay you the next time I see you. It cost him to exercise compassion. He was willing to give of his own money to help the need of this one who was beaten and left half dead. And then number three, he brought him to a place of safety. So was that a big deal? Yeah, because he was beaten. He was vulnerable. And he was willing to bring him to a place of safety. I was challenged this last week in watching a sermon online from Luke where it talked about meeting the needs of the poor and meeting the needs of those who are neglected or beaten or mistreated. We are a terrible nation of taking care of those things. And yet it's Christ-like. I wonder how often we have opportunities. Maybe it's not a time issue. Maybe it's not a money issue. Maybe it's just an issue where you need to open up your home to be a blessing to somebody for a season. You ever been willing to do that? That's a different ball game of a whole new level. You expose yourself and all your inconsistencies and all those struggles that you face to those who are, ever come, are coming into your home. And they find out you're not perfect as you tried to make people think you are. They see all your flaws because they're there with you. 
but maybe it's a place of security. The Samaritan who showed compassion would not have been expected to stop, to go the extra mile, is the one that shows compassion. But here's the thing. Jesus, and this is the twist that jumped off the page too. Jesus, verse 36, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer responded, and he said, He who showed mercy on him. I was reading some commentary on this, and the commentary brought out something I'd never thought of before. What was obvious about the person who showed compassion? He was what? Samaritan. There you go. It wasn't a quick question, quick, uh, a sneaky uh, you know, answer, a sneaky question. It was a, it was a Samaritan. Yeah, it was a Samaritan. One unlikely to stop. The ones that the Jewish folks didn't get along with. The ones that they kind of would avoid in public, in community, in the neighborhood. The Samaritan. But you know what the lawyer could not bring himself to say? Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? You know what he could not say? It was the, say it, Samaritan. And the writer of the commentary said, do you suppose just for a moment that that lawyer was prejudiced? Do you think for a moment that that lawyer had biases? And that he could not get himself to say it was the Samaritan. I mean, how dare I give Give, give, give honor to a Samaritan who stopped. I mean, how dare I praise him and lift him up? How dare I bring attention to him and his right actions? But the lawyer wouldn't even say the Samaritan. I wonder if there's some truth to that thought, and I think there might be. You have to ask the question. Here's a guy who knew the law. Let me kind of bring it into practical application of today. He knew truth. He knew how he should have responded. But wanting to test Jesus, wanting to justify his own life, knowing what was right, had prejudices and biases in his own life that prohibited him from fulfilling the truth that he knew that prohibited him from being obedient. And I was thinking about this even last night. My own church. Our church. This week, I've been reading in Psalm chapter 67. I've been read, I read through it every morning for the last week or so, so far. Just reading it. There's something that was brought to my attention this last week. Psalm 67. God, be merciful to us and bless us, and cause His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known on earth, Your salvation among all nations. Get that thought in your mind. All nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples. You know what it doesn't say there? Some of the peoples. It doesn't say certain of peoples. 
That'd be a good spot for an amen, just saying. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations of the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let What's the word? All the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear Him. Do you notice those few words that I highlighted? All means what? All. And peoples means every peoples. Plural. And yet we have our own little groups that we're comfortable around. You see, is that in the text really? Or are you just kind of getting on a side tangent? Yes and yes. Because when I look at my church, I would love to see all the peoples represented. I would love to see all the nations represented here. I would love to see all the people groups of our communities, of our state, represented here. I love going to the Nepali church. When I go over there and I speak over there on occasion, man, when Big Ken shows up, that's what they call me, Big Ken. When Big Ken shows up, they're excited. They're excited when Big Ken shows up. I love listening to him worship. I love listening to him pray. I love listening. They, they welcome me with, with open arms. They know I'll eat their food. As hot as it might be, I don't care. I'll eat it. They are welcoming of the nations. I wonder how often we're not welcoming of the nations. Let's even break it down a little bit further. We're not welcoming of certain people groups. Because they're different than you or I. Come on. I would love to see all the people. All the colors. All the ethnic groups. All the world represented. In order for that to happen, folks, we're going to have to step out. Because God didn't just call certain groups. He didn't call just certain peoples. And here's the very example. He's trying to teach him what it means to love your neighbor. And he's trying to justify, well, who's my neighbor? You know who your neighbor is. You know exactly who your neighbor is. You know exactly who you have a sphere of influence with. You know exactly who it is that you rub elbows with every day of your life. You know exactly who it is that you need to talk to. And yet we want to justify ourselves and say, well, I'm just busy. Or they're different than me. I think there's a little bit of a point there. Maybe just a little one, but we're going to jump on it just for a moment. The lawyer couldn't even say, oh, it's the Samaritan. It's the one that did the right deed. Mm. 1 John chapter 4. Kind of speaks to this just a little bit. In verses 7 through 11, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Could we say the converse of that is true as well? If you're not loving, you don't know God, and you don't love God? I think so. It says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this love, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the perpetuation for our sins. 
And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not justify why we don't. Not ask a rhetorical question to something we already know the answer to. Well, who's my neighbor? You know who the neighbor is. And we know who our neighbors are. We know who it is that God has called us to love. And it's not that person. They have a name. It's not that group. They're one of us. Because God created everyone equal in His image. Amen? Jesus was making a point here. I think Jesus was seeking for the lawyer to apply the parable to himself. But you see the hardness of his heart in his reply. The one who showed mercy. But Jesus was making the point here. One can know the law. One can know truth. And yet not truly be living it out. I wonder if that might be true of us at times. We know the truth. But we're not living it out. Here's a lawyer. He knew the law. He knew what was expected. He knew how to apply it but yet was not. I don't think Jesus would have said do this and live if he was already doing it. He was telling him to do something, to remind him to do something that he knew he was to do. And then he wraps it all up by saying one thing. Go and do likewise. Just as the Samaritan man had stopped and given up his time, given up his money, in providing a place of safety and shelter, in really showing love, go and do likewise. One last passage. If you would take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, I want to read verses 14 through 17. James 2.14 says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one, you, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are in need for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's, what is he saying here? If you truly know me, it can't just be a verbal thing. You can't just say, well, I love God. It has to be borne out through your actions. It has to be fleshed out in how you live your life. I can't just say, well, I, I love God. Where's the proof of that love? Where's the evidence of that love? And someone would argue, well, I, I really do. I know God. I mean, I really do know Him. I, I, really, I really do. I mean, God knows my heart. He really does know that I know Him. Well, He addresses that too. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the de demons believe and tremble. What's he saying here? So you say you have faith? Well, okay, well, where's the proof of it? Well, I love God. Well, okay, well, I believe in God. Well, well, well fine, demons believe too and they tremble. What's your point? That's what he's saying here. Words are shallow if they're not followed up by actions. 
There's one individual that calls me quite often and says, Hey, Pastor Ken, can you meet? Sure, what time? He'll give me a time, and he doesn't show up. Second time, gives me a time and a day, and he doesn't show up. Third time, he gives me a time and a day, and he doesn't show up. And it's not that big a deal because I'm here anyway. So he's going to meet, he's going to show up, but he doesn't show up. So now on, probably the last four times he has called, I said, give me a time and a day. I just know he's not going to show up, so I'm not even around. And he doesn't show up. You know why you get to that point? Because for some people, the word means nothing. You see, if our words are not backed up by action, it doesn't mean anything. If you say you're going to do something, then do it. But here's the bigger picture in the context of the Scripture. If you say you love Christ, if you say that you put your faith and trust in Him, don't let it be idle words. Back it up with your life. Because faith without works is dead. And he goes on here. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He said, if we don't understand that, we're foolish. The one who doesn't understand that is foolish. I don't want to be a fool. I want to back up what I say is in my heart and what I tell others is in my life with how I live it. And that was really the principle that Jesus was teaching through the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, go and do likewise. You know the answer to the question, who's your neighbor? Really? You know that answer. Now go do it. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, are we hearers of the word and also doers, or are we hearers and not doers, deceiving ourselves? I'm sure the lawyer, I'm just, this hypothetical, but I'm sure he's probably a big dog in town. He's a big wig. He's a lawyer. He knows the law. He's got some clout, maybe a little bit of esteem. But none of that mattered. Because he wasn't living out what he knew he should be doing. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in the same boat sometimes knowing what to do, but not doing it. Do we truly love as we have to love? Do we truly exercise our faith and that we're living it out day by day? If not, we need to start. Let's pray.